This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm blessed and honored to be in dialogue with Dr. Avri Sakutopoulou. She is a psychoanalyst who lives and works in New York City. She is a member of the faculty of New York City's postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. We are here today to discuss her new book, Sexuality Beyond Consent, Risk, Race, Traumatophilia, published in New York by New York University Press, 2023. Afri, it's my sincere privilege to be in dialogue with you today. I'm so delighted to be here, Ari. Thank you so much for the invitation. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar and psychoanalyst you would become as an adult? Um, I grew up uh, in a bicultural home uh, and in two in two countries, between two countries. Um, Cyprus, um, the Greek Cypriot part of Cyprus, which was divided in 1974, um, and um, Athens, uh, which is where my father is from. Uh, and in my childhood, I toggled between these two countries, which have a lot in common, but are also very different from each other. Um, Cyprus is a recently post-colonial country with a lot of um, intense uh, features of what it means to be in the aftermath of um, British rule. Um, and, um, and Greece is a country um, that is much more familiar to most people uh, with, a, with a very rich history and a very particular set of um, um, relations around race um, and around religion. Um, so it's been it's been very formative to have these two different sets of experiences. And when you grow up in two countries, uh, what you recognize from the beginning is that the way that your culture is, uh, the way that culture works, is not the way things are. It's just one way in which things are done. When when you grow up in two countries, 
you you come into contact with that from the very beginning. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Um, what I wanted to explore in sexuality beyond consent are experiences that feel like one is playing with fire or it feels like somebody else is playing with fire and you're watching them play with fire. But instead of pulling back into some place of safety, one steps into the risk of that kind of experience. That could be an, ex an experience of an encounter with another person or an encounter with a piece of art, which is something that I discuss in the book, or even an encounter with a psychoanalyst. Um, and I was very interested in experiences that are not so much about staying safe or preserving ourselves, but about what happens when we throw ourselves into experience. What are the primary themes in your book? What story, quote unquote, does your book tell? Um, I think that the book is best described as, as a series of thoughts on consent, on how we think about consent, on trauma, how we think about trauma, and then how we think about um, kind of like interpersonal relationships and social relationships. Um, and, and many of these ideas are organized around thinking around race and difference, uh, other forms of difference. Um, I, I started out wanting to put some pressure on the idea, on the way in which consent um, is talked about uh, today. Um, I wanted to start by saying that consent negotiations always involve more than what we think we bargained for and wanted to put some pressure on affirmative consent, which promises a safety that it cannot deliver. But even more importantly, the safety that affirmative consent tells you you should want is a kind of safety that, this is what the book is really about, can impoverish you, make you poor in experience. Um, and I, I start with that to then think a little bit about kind of like trauma in that context. Um, if, if consent is not something that secures us, but something that helps us take a risk, and I, I use the term limit consent to talk about that kind of consent, what does it mean to begin to kind of like approximate trauma, to come close to trauma, to rub up again against experiences that could be traumatic? Um, so I introduce a different way of thinking about trauma in the book, which I call traumatophilia. And the idea of traumatophilia is about becoming less preoccupied with healing trauma and paying more attention to what people do with trauma. Um, these are some of, some of the main ideas in the book that I hope we get to talk about more. Absolutely. What would you like listeners to get out of our interview today? That's such a great question. Um, um, I guess a couple of different things. Um, I... Part of what I would like to highlight is a fiction that we have all come to believe as truth, which is that um, like this idea that kind of like there's ways of healing trauma or resolving trauma or working through trauma. And one of the things that I would like uh, listeners to to hold on to if they, if they hold on to a couple of things from this podcast is that trauma is never healed, that it leaves behind wounds and scars that we're drawn to touch and that nobody has ever been healed of their trauma. There are different things that we do with trauma that happen with trauma, but it's not about that there's no way to, to return to where one was, to where you were before you were traumatized. There's just no going back to that. What do you mean by traumatophilia? Can you 
expand on this term. What does it mean? Where does it derive from? What role does traumatophilia play in your book and in your practice? Mm. Um, traumatophilia is about shifting our attention from um, this impossible task of healing trauma to paying more attention to what people do with trauma, how people already engage trauma. And that's difficult to do because if the framework is that trauma is something that needs to be resolved or something that we need to get over so that people can feel whole and healed and go back to their lives, um, then it's it's hard to kind of like give up on this attachment to to get better, where getting better is about um repairing trauma. And, and there's a lot of discourses right now um, thinking about kind of like both sexual justice and racial politics that are organized around this notion that trauma can be healed. But what traumatophilia does um, is it's, it's a concept that comes from um, the work of a psychoanalyst who I work with a lot in this book, uh, Jean Laplanche, and he proposes it in a very general way, uh, in a very productive way, in a very inspiring way. And what I do is I take his idea and blow it up into a a whole way of thinking. Um, Traumatophilia is, is a composite word. It comes together from the word trauma and philia, which in Greek means an affinity for or a love for, like, for example, when we say that somebody is a bibliophile, they really like reading books. And it it raises this really paradoxical um, and unexpected uh, observation that trauma is not just something that people want to get away from, but that we're also attracted to the things that have wounded us, that we also tend to return to moments in our lives that have been traumatic. And that if, for example, you go through a traumatic experience with somebody, um, you develop a bond with that person, a a strange bond. You you may or not even like that person, but there's something about trauma that has um, kind of like this quality of almost conflict. Sometimes it acts like a glue um, or a magnet. And I find that many conversations about trauma overlook the ways in which we're drawn back to it or pathologize it, seeing it as something that is necessarily a problem. Um, in, in my thinking, traumatophilia is more about trying to discern what people do with their trauma and how the, the difficult and painful experiences that many of us have had can that be turned into something else, can become something else? Thank you. There's a quotation on page four I'd be curious to ask you about. You write as follows. Part of a clinical psychoanalyst training thus involves learning to discern where, in what form, and with what possible effects the unconscious appears phenomenally rather than focusing only on what information about the past or the present's fantasy are disclosed when the unconscious shows up in symptoms, in dreams, etc. I bring this sensibility to my discussion of performance and art 
to investigate the mechanism through which some theater may have the transformational potential claimed on its behalf. To explain how performance touches us, we usually turn to the interior elements it evokes. For example, we may say that it reminded us of something or that it resonated with something we have experienced or that it spoke to a particular part of ourselves. I want to highlight what is usually disregarded by this overemphasis to draw our attention to how art or performance acts on us and away from which part of the self or memory it evokes. Can you elaborate on this insight for us? Sure. Um, thank you for for pulling that section out of out of the of the book because it's um, it's actually one of the most important um, building stones of some of the things that I'm saying. Um, um, I, I work a lot with theater and performance in this book, and specifically with um, Jeremy O'Harris's slave play. Um, and, and what I what I want to do is there's there's a long tradition in performance studies um, speaking about how it is that performance affects us and like the transformational impact that art can have on us. And many many people have written about this, and many people have experienced this in their own lives. But oftentimes, when we talk about why something might have this kind of transformational effect, we look for uh, what it reminded us of or what it helped us connect with that we're not thinking about or how it really helped us understand something about our past that we hadn't, hadn't quite put together or we felt very seen by it. And all of these are absolutely true and, and, um, and, and that's part of how these things work. But what we don't often talk about is what it means what it's like to go to see, for example, a performance, a dance performance, and leave feeling stunned. Stunned in a way that cannot be put in language that connects it with what it meant to you or what it brought up for you. It's, it hits you on a level of, of what in other places in the book I call pure experience, of like where something becomes extremely almost magnified in yourself. And for fleeting moments, you get to have contact with something in yourself that cannot be figured out, that is more opaque, um, that we can't quite touch through other modes. Um, this, is, this is why art has a reach in us, assuming we let it reach us, which is also something that we can say more about in terms of kind of like how our consent is implicated. Um, art can can reach you in some ways, break into you um, in ways that have to do with unconscious life. And I don't mean unconscious life uh, on the metric of like what it what it reminds you about your past, but touching something in you that is very vibrant and alive and not always available to you. Some energies that that we usually keep under wraps. What do you mean by overwhelm? How do you interpret and reinterpret this phenomenon? Um, being overwhelmed is something that we're drawn to. Um, we tell ourselves the story that all we want to do is stay away from 
trauma because it has wounded us, because it will overwhelm us if we get too close. So a lot is put in place to make sure that we don't come up against these kinds of experiences. But overwhelm is also how things that are unexpected and surprising and vitalizing can happen. And what sexuality beyond consent explores and in in some ways makes a nosedive in is these kinds of experiences of overwhelm um, and makes an argument for for their importance, um, even though they're not important in the way we usually think of what's important in life in terms of being understood or being seen or being... Um, or being held by others. It's more about what happens in the shock of experience. What do you mean by the term unsettling? What is the importance of unsettling in your book? The, the word unsettling appears in, in several places, and it is um, kind of like I speak about the same idea in, in many other ways when I talk about kind of like the importance of being disturbed, uh, the importance of letting ourselves be um, um, kind of like be met at the limits of what we can bear. And some of my, some of the things that I've, that I've observed both in my clinical practice and also in, in other parts of my life and um, in, in general culture is how, um, how cautious um, human beings are, how careful we are in trying to make sure that nothing happens to us that we did not expect, that we did not plan, that we did not, that we do not generally have the sense of um, of kind of like what it will bring to us. Like, for example, I'm thinking of some people before they go see a movie or before they go see a piece of theater, they always want to read the reviews. They want to say what they want to think. They want to know what other people think about it. They want to know what other people say. They want to know what happens. What is the plot? Um, and and certainly that is kind of like one way to engage uh, with with um, film and theater. Like some of the some some people that I have a lot of respect for have this uh, sensibility in them. But there are also ways in which this kind of preparation may may also be about closing oneself up to being hit with the force of something that you did not expect and you did not know you were signing up for. Um, Or rather, you sign up for it without quite knowing where it will touch you. Um, And that that is is a kind of experience that, um, for example, like the the conversations around trigger warnings are trying to manage that kind of experience Um, or conversations about like preparing the other person for what might happen. And this is this is something that as a psychoanalyst in in my clinical practice, I observe all the time is entirely um, um, impossible to do. One can never quite be prepared for what will happen when you encounter another person, how they will act on you, what they will bring up in you, things about yourself that you might have not even, may, may not recognize as yours or which may um, may feel even alarming to you. And yet those experiences are very valuable. There's a passage on pages 22 and 23 that I'd be curious to ask you about. You write as follows. I also wrote this book for you, not the plural you, but the singular you. You can read it for its ideas and I hope you will. But this is not only a book about ideas. It is also a book that wants to give you an experience. Writing this way is a risk. It has required great vulnerability of me. 
writing this book has led me to places I did not expect to go, to experiences I did not expect to have. It has taken me to places that scare me. More than once, I found myself before something much bigger than myself towering over me. I have written this book so that you can follow me there. You do not know what you will experience, what you will encounter, how it may disturb you, what it might set in motion for you. But if you stay with me, you can go slowly. If you linger in the interstitial spaces between reach and grasp, this book can give you more. It can demand something of you. Perhaps you will have an experience yourself. More than anything, I wrote this book for readers who savor their experiences, who are willing to push themselves to the limits of self-understanding, who are able and e for eager even to bend their will. For readers willing to be pulled out of reason and tread into something raw and tender. For readers who yearn to go beyond the sensible, there is an elsewhere in yourself to which these pages may take you. I have, in fact, written this book imagining you giving yourself over to me, which is a strange thing to say, given that I do not know you. Neither do you. Let us begin. Can you clarify what you mean in this passage? Um, I, I, I can say more about it, but I don't know that I can clarify it. In fact, I hope sure, that... Can you I say more about it? I, I, in some ways, I say this somewhat playfully because I hope that what I will offer is not more of a clarification because... This, this passage is intended to evoke something rather than to communicate something. Um, so I hope that um, in saying more about it, I can stay on that um, uh, more on the level of evoking and perhaps inspiring rather than exp explaining. Um, th this, um, it's, it's, I'm so interested that you pulled this um, this section from the book it is these are the paragraphs in the book that i've worked on the most i wrote them and rewrote them and came back to them multiple times i've spent literally hours on these paragraphs they in some ways they feel like they're the most important paragraphs in the book um mm. because this is where i address the reader and tell the reader whom i don't know and who does not know me um what what I intend to do um, and what I hope might come up for them. Um, it is also where I invite the reader to, to lower their defenses and to give themselves over to me, not me, Avi, the person, but to their, to their author whose book they are holding in their hands, such that when they start encountering, as is the case, time and again in this book, one complicated, one difficult, emotionally difficult thing after another. And the book is has a lot of very controversial ideas in it. It has a lot of challenging ideas, which I hope are also going to be exciting to some readers, that as the reader begins to encounter them, instead of closing up and quickly making decisions or judgments about them, they might allow themselves to, to see what happens if they kind of like get on the boat and let the boat takes them, take them where it will, and then decide after the fact whether they like the journey, how it felt to them, whether they agree or disagree. So of course, you know, after after one is done with a book, one gets to have an opinion, an idea, um, like it, not like it, criticize it, and so on and so forth. But part of what I'm hoping um 
or what I was hoping and working on this section to do is to invite the reader to enter the book in some sense of from a very private place in themselves where they can be with themselves, letting what they read act on them without having too much of the chatter in the background of what would this person say about this book or what would that person say about that idea, but to let the ideas wash over them, perhaps even into them, let them be taken by the ideas and some of the provocative claims in the book and see how they feel about them, see what it brings up in their bodies, what it brings up in in their sense of themselves before rushing to organize it around, does this argument make sense? Uh, do I agree with it? But what about the other way of thinking about it that uh, that is also on my mind? So again, all of these can happen and will happen and, and should happen. I was just trying to create some, in, in some ways to invite the reader into some space where they might read in a way that is just for themselves. Thank you. How do you define perversity? What insights on perversity are presented in your book? Mm-hmm. No, perversity is um, perversity is a word with a with a lot of baggage, uh, especially in my field, but also more generally in culture. We think of perverse um, as perverse that which is pathological, especially in a sexual way, or some or this thing which has been perverted from its, its original goal. It's been taken to do something else. Uh, so it's now perverse because instead of doing what it was supposed to do, it does something that takes you in an off direction. And you know, I've been I've been writing for a long time in my field about sexuality and about what happens around sexualities that are not, that don't look to us the way we think sexuality should look in terms of what people do, what people are interested in sexually, what arouses them, what what turns them on, um, and have been developing an argument that is fleshed out in this book about why it is that experiences that are perverse, and I, I keep the term even though I'm committed to the term, even though I don't use it in a pathological way. Uh, I I like the term and I keep it because I feel that it it maintains it it preserves this quality of this edge, uh, this intensity that comes with perversion. Um, um, what, what I was so I was saying that what I was interested in is in exploring um, experiences that are usually very dismissible or very quickly judged as the product of previous trauma or the product of some psychopathology um, or somebody kind of like, or something as when we say that something is like really messed up to argue that experiences that are and look really messed up actually come with a lot of potential, a lot of transformative potential. Um, These experiences are not experiences that we have always with our consent. Um, What I mean by that is not that they are forced on us, but that we often find ourselves in situations that where something is happening that is beyond the reach of our understanding. And sometimes we choose to stay in it. Um, That is not a consent that is violated, but it is a different kind of consent. Um, In the book, I call it limit consent. 
and perhaps we can we will be saying more about that later uh, yeah absolutely there's another quote i'd be curious to ask you to say more about which is on page 10 uh you write as follows this default orientation has interesting implications for intersecting minoritarian identities because while the ego is universally invested in its structural stability which it defends fervently as a way for subjects to feel quote-unquote at home the raw materials it is made out of are not equally hospitable for all subjects as such those for whom dominant social values quote-unquote work better because the world makes a home for them are better served by the ego's investment in maintaining the status quo. Those who are minoritized by virtue of their sex, race, nationality, gender, and so on, may more readily be willing to risk disturbing the conservative forces of their own egos. To put this differently, is it possible that persons who do not get to be quote-unquote at home in the world may be more susceptible more readily perceptive to the disquiet of their own opacity. Further, because the social can provide a bolstering of one's narcissism, it can also operate as a fortification of one's resistance to encountering one's opacity. In this sense, dominant social location, e.g. whiteness, works on the side of resistance. By giving the illusion of being at home, it may embolden the subject's narcissism, creating the fragile sense that problems need not be encountered, an illusion that requires constant reinforcement to be maintained. Can you explain further what you are saying in this passage? Yes. Um, I mean, this passage comes after kind of like some fleshing out of what I of terms that I use throughout the book in which I explain in detail around the ego and opacity, which I, I am, I'm loving the opportunity of breaking them down um, for our listeners. Um, so in, in um, briefly, what I'm, um, what I'm speaking to is that, like we were talking earlier about experiences of overwhelm, um, experiences where one encounters things that feel overwhelming to oneself. And how do we um, make ourselves open to these kinds of um, to these kinds of experiences that can prove transformational. And part of what I say in this section is that, you know, the, the resistances to being open to these kinds of experiences have to do with what, in at least the kind of psychoanalysis that I work with in this book, calls the ego. Kind of like the ego is the part of ourselves that that organizes us, that it's where we have a sense of who we are. It's where we have a sense of how things work. It's where we have a sense of kind of like what is asked of us and what we could or should um, put in motion or, or do with the other. Um, for example, kind of like neither of us would have made it to the interview today if we didn't have a functioning ego to say this very, very concretely. Uh, so the ego is something Thing we absolutely need. Uh, we need it. It's what gets us through the world. It's what keeps us safe. But, but an ego that is too invested, is too um, frightened to allow something new to happen, um, 
also makes us kind of like begins to become restrictive such that we are not open to new experiences. And what the ego is interested in its job is to make sure that we are safe and that we can function and that things are kept um, kind of like bound uh, and connected. Um, This is not what happens with new experience. Um, So when I was speaking earlier about the possibilities of overwhelm, I was speaking to contextualize it with what I just said, I was speaking about what it means to allow oneself to come undone uh, a little bit or a lot bit. Um, And the section that you just um, read out loud speaks to how this willingness to to push back on the on our on on the ego's wish to keep things stable this willingness differs um across different people and based on many factors and one of them can be social location uh, so people for whom the work the world feels like it works for them um white people um people whose genders are kind of like easily recognized and belong in systems and kind of like cis uh, people who are cis um people who are um kind of like able-bodied in generally it's people who's for whom the world works are are less likely um to and this is a generalization but uh, it's it's one that i want to make are less likely to allow themselves to 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 have their ego pushed back against um they they may be less likely to expose themselves to experiences that can um leave them feeling undone because the experience of feeling undone is not an experience that they have very much of in the world again i'm saying that these are generalizations because you know it's it's entirely possible that you're white and normatively gendered and able-bodied and have had a lot of experiences that have felt to you like they have broken you or have traumatized you um so i'm not trying to make like a categorical statement but what i am trying to say is that like the 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 trauma and social trauma personal trauma familial trauma in some ways loosens up the ego in ways that might make some people more susceptible more and more willing to risk experiences because they're not as terrified or as frightened by feeling disorganized which is what the experience of overwhelm can leave one feeling uh, in the media, uh, in the moment. In the passage that I shared, the term opacity comes up. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by opacity? How does yeah. your book reinterpret or interpret opacity? Mm-hmm. Opacity is, um, it's, it's a word that comes to us, comes to me from uh, the work of the um, uh, decolonial theorist Edouard Glissant, who who talks about kind of like ways in which um, the Western world reaches into um, other worlds. He's specifically thinking about the Caribbean world, trying to understand it by by grasping it, grasping it to bring it to its terms. Uh, So he has, and I'm not going to be able to reproduce exactly the quote, but he says something like, that grasping is is the movement of hands that take something from out there and try to bring it to to oneself. Um, and in that sense, he's also talking about the ways in which 
kind of like trying to grasp the other is also about trying to appropriate. It can be an appropriate if move. Um, so where we usually say, well, I want to grasp what you're saying and think that what we're doing is trying to understand the other, there's also ways in which that grasping can be violent. Um, opacity is what he insists is what we should allow each other, um, that we should be allowing each other the opacity of not being always reachable, uh, of not needing to understand every single thing about the world, especially when that understanding happens on our own terms. So in this case, when I talk about somebody being um, receptive to the disquiet of their own opacity, it goes back to what you were asking me about earlier when you asked me about um, unsettlement. Like it's unsettling to be in contact with something about oneself one does not understand. But this is also precisely what can happen in these experiences that are kind of like at, at the at the border of what we can make sense of or at the border of what we have um, agreed to and which may feel overwhelming. What does your book teach us about memory and amnesia? Um, I think this is an interesting question, which if if you will permit me, I'll switch a little bit because I think that part of what the book does is push back against the notion that memory or recovering memory is um, the only way to think about trauma. Uh, oftentimes, kind of like trauma is something that we, kind of like there, there's a lot of literature on this, and there's a lot of conversations in general culture about how trauma is something you need to be able to talk about, to talk about safely, to to be able to remember it and to have other people hold it with you. So there's a lot of conversations about witnessing or about holding space. Um, but, um, and yet that does not touch on experiences that come with a certain kind of force, like when we were talking earlier about performance that acts on you, that is not necessarily about what it reminded you of, uh, it's more about shaking you out of something and into something else, even though what what you're being shaken out of and what you're being shaken into may not always be possible to to determine. Like it may not this is it may be opaque. Um, it may not it's it has more to do with the experience of it rather than what it meant or what uh, what it reminded you of or what it, what it caused you to remember because you had forgotten it or repressed it because it was so traumatic. And now it, you've been kind of like thrown into that memory. Uh, so a, a lot of this book is about how to keep in mind all of these work that has been done around memory, but also try to move beyond it into spaces that cannot be remembered because we've never had memories in them and yet are so important to, to our experience and our relationships to each other and also to our encounter with art. What would a complete beginner in studying sexuality and trauma learn from your book? What would a complete and total layman in the theory of trauma and theory of sexuality gain from reading this study? Um, this is a really fascinating question um, because you know, this idea, like, you know, when you're talking about like a complete layman or a novice, uh, the truth is that you, you don't need to have opened a single book on trauma 
to know about trauma. It is in the media, it's in our public conversations. Um, there's a lot of ideas that are circulating in, in psychoanalysis or trauma studies that have become quite popularized um, in, um, in everyday life. So it would be very hard to find somebody who's a complete novice. Um, but, but what I would say is that um, when it comes to trauma, um, part of what I would hope readers can get from this book is this distinction between kind of like guarding ourselves and being um, overly preoccupied at times with being traumatized um, and becoming more interested in what happens when trauma is revisited, uh, when people go back to experiences of trauma, not, not because somebody else told them to or because somebody else is forcing them to, but because they follow their own, um, the, the ways in which they are themselves drawn back to it. Um, I'm not offering this as a how-to. Certainly the book, and I say this very explicitly, it's not a, it's not a manual for treatment. It's not a self-help book. What it tries to do is um, speak to readers who are curious about experiences that they've had or experiences that they've courted but haven't let themselves had because they frightened them, because they're afraid they will be traumatized. Um, transformational experiences are not experiences that make you feel safe. Transformational experience is experience that shakes you to, to the core of your being and that, that meets you at the limit of what you can bear. How does your book enable us to think about sadism in new ways? How does your book enable us to think about masochism in new ways? How are these concepts and themes understood in your book? Um, sadism is a very important, talking about sadism is a very important part of the book. Uh, but what I'm trying to speak about here is, uh, is a strange kind of sadism, not not the kind of sadism that we usually we're used to thinking about. I'm talking about an ethical kind of sadism. Um, and what I mean by ethical sadism is a sadism that we exercise with ourselves, not in the sense of torturing ourselves or making ourselves do things that would feel um, kind of like torturesome, but about bending our own will, um, pushing back against our own egos, propensity to keep us safe so that we may go to places that don't feel comfortable. And that kind of exercise of sadism requires an integrity, it requires a kind of a kind of strength with oneself, a kind of determination and a mental fortitude, especially because I'm not talking about a sadism that is about controlling somebody else or controlling the outcome of what of what will come. Um, and it may be strange to hear me say that sadism, sadism could be ethical when we usually think of it as destructive and we're very aware of the ways in which it can be catastrophic, like both historically or kind of like we can think of so many examples in history when sadism has been exercised against classes of people, kind of like race easily comes as an example. Um, but... But what I'm speaking about here is something else. I'm speaking about um, the kind of I'm speaking about ethical sadism as what what it means to hold one's feet, one's own feet to the fire. 
It is time to recognize that some forms of care are not about validation or reassurance, but about holding our own and sometimes other people's feet to the fire. Um, so, for example, like I'm thinking, you know, there is kind of like there's a lot of conversations right now happening very widely about um, calling out or calling in or kind of like a lot of efforts to figure out how do you name something that another person is doing that is problematic without shaming them, but also without standing too far back from naming what they did or why it was destructive. And what I would say to that is that kind of like there's a kind of ethical sadism that is involved in saying to another person, what you did is problematic, um, or to saying what you did hurt me, without trying to reassure them, without trying to fix that for them, without immediately going into, but but it's okay, uh, or I'm going to be fine, or you can just repair it by apologizing, without moving too quickly through the harm to, to repair it. Um, you see, that that's another problematic way in which repair works. We imagine that we cannot do the harms that we cause, as opposed to having to live with the harms that we cause, trying to do better in the future, but not denying that we've caused harm. So from that perspective, what ethical sadism involves is being able to, it's ethical because it doesn't intend to harm and it doesn't intend to control. But it's also sadistic because there is, and this is something that I think we have a lot of trouble recognizing, a certain kind of pleasure in naming another person's misstep. And that is not necessarily a pleasure of trying to torture them, but there is this momentary pleasure of, it's not me, I wasn't the one who did it. And when we say, well, we just need to call people out or call people in, so that they don't feel ashamed and we all do it kind of like the, 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 the implication is that there's a way to say to the person what you just did. For example, let's take a racial enactment. Somebody says something racist. This is something that happens a lot in my field and that my field is really struggling with. Somebody says something racist and when it's named, that person oftentimes feels attacked or feels like they have been shamed or humiliated because they didn't intend to do it. That was not their, um, their, um, that's not what they meant. They're being misread. But being able to stay with noting that what happened happened, that this doesn't mean that that person is a bad person forever, but that that moment was a racist moment. And to do so without kind of like opening the door to, and here's how you can fix it. You can just write an apology or issue a statement. Um, I don't mean to minimize these. I don't think they're unimportant. But this fantasy that you can just undo it if you have the, the, right, the right method or the right approach is, um, is what I'm trying to speak to. Um, this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. You write the following on page 183. Part of what makes the disturbance introduced by this type of sadism deeply ethical is that it is also accompanied 
by some measure of caring support. The support is not of the ordinary kind. That is, it is not reified as when we offer reassurance or validation of the other's wishes, nor is it instrumental in tending to produce a specific effect, as that would be antithetical to the surrender of the unknown required of the exigent saddest. The support, rather, is distributed in the texture of the encounter itself, in the way space is held, in the physical sensorium of the saddest's address, in her refusal to let the other assimilate the disturbance into the ego's already established meaning troughs. Can you interpret this for us? Yeah, uh, this is kind of like much more technical language uh, that speaks to um, kind of like to the measure of care that is built into the the sadism that I'm discussing and which is what makes it ethical. And the reason why I describe it as care is because there's a difference between just like like in the example with, for example, a racial, uh, a racist moment, a racial enactment that I was talking about before, um, it, it is kind of like easy to start um, beating up on somebody who has done something racist um, in, in a way that also makes somebody feel better about themselves. Oh, here is the racism in them and not in me. And therefore, kind of like now it's, it's clearly decided who is the racist and who is not. And in calling somebody out, you get to feel better and stronger and uh, more virtuous. Um, um, what I'm speaking about here is a kind of naming that that where the other person is neither given a quick way out of how to fix it, nor are they pummeled uh, about what they did, but where the, the res their responsibility is held. Um, the, the person is asked to hold their responsibility while also not being abandoned. Uh, and by abandoned, I don't mean that kind of like that the, the person who is engaged in this encounter steps into to save the person from themselves or to hold it for them. Um, that's what I mean by saying that one has to hold the other person's feet to the fire. But it's also about not giving up on them. And it's also about not um, stepping outside of the relation, um, a, a priori stepping out of the relation, because what the other person did was so despicable. Um, obviously, there will be situations where that will happen, but that, those then we would be in a different domain than the kind of sadism that I'm discussing. Um, okay, here here's another example for um, coming from the clinic. Um, when we work clinically, um, oftentimes there are situations where a patient may be doing something that is contributing to their own anguish or to their own suffering. Naming that is never easy. In fact, when I supervise um, students uh, or when I think about my own work, it's very hard, even when you have a sense of what the patient might be doing, to name it because you don't want to hurt the person. Uh, you don't want the person to feel like you're not understanding them or they don't understand where they're coming from. But if you don't name these things, that doesn't help either. Um, so it takes a certain kind of fortitude for the analyst to decide to go in that direction um, and to to address 
those kinds of things. Um, now, the analytic situation is obviously not the same as the social situation, but what I'm trying to point to here is the parallel between uh, different kinds of contexts, many kinds of contexts, in which naming something that is difficult can be a form of care, but it also demands a certain kind of sadism, not a destructive sadism, but a sadism that the other person may feel bad about what you're saying. Uh, the other person may not feel good about themselves, but in the long term, in the long run, it, it may be more useful than if you were to be constantly staying away from it. Um, in what ways is your book influenced by the ideas of Marquis de Sade? In what ways has your theoretical worldview been shaped by Marquis de Sade's thought? Um, the Marquis de Sade is a very is a very interesting um, individual. Like he's he's mostly known for having written um, kind of like pornographic works, um, 120 Days of Sodom, for example, um, and for having lent his name to the term sadism. Um, um, but what many people don't know is that he was also a political philosopher um, writing at the time of the French Revolution uh, and writing about uh, a lot about power, about the misuses of power, and writing at a time that uh, writing from oftentimes from cells uh, or mental institutions where he was confined for various reasons that have to do with um, had to do with his um, um, had to do with abuses of power. Um, so he writes from jails uh, and he writes from mental institutions. And what he's what he's trying to do amidst all of his pornographic writings. Um, so if you read the sad, you will you will see that there are there is one kind of like sexual, uh, oftentimes atrocious scene after another. Um, and in between the debauches and in between um, the kinds of um, of uh, orgies that he describes, his characters will pause and start speaking about the church about politics, about the aristocracy. And a, a lot has been written on this part of his work and of his writing. Uh, but part of what he offers is a way to think about a concept that 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 um, the philosopher Georges Bataille then really takes up, which is the question of like, how do you maintain your sense of yourself, your self-sovereignty amidst these kinds of forces? Um, and a, a lot of his writing is in a way, um, um, an effort to to do that, and an effort to to show us that um, self sovereignty, um, kind of like a sense of kind of like um, self sovereignty, is also a, an important term a term in this book. Like this question of how do you um, of of how. Do you maintain a, a sense of yourself even amidst the the powerful um, social oppressions around you, the powerful stories about how we're supposed to relate to each other, the the injuries of trauma? Uh, how do you hold on to 
the primacy of your experience. Um, what is depicted on the front cover of your book? Would you kindly explain the cover art and the cover image for us? Yeah. So, um, so this is, um, I was very delighted that we were able to get permission to use this image, uh, which is from uh, a Korean female artist uh, by the name of um, Ji Young Lee. Um, and this this piece specifically is called Broken Heart, and it depicts uh, a woman who's actually the artist herself um, in this in a room where there's um, she's holding eggs that she's smashing against rocks. Um, and part of what felt really striking to me about this cover is this notion of like knowing that something will not work, but keeping at it anyway, like that, that this is how trauma works, but this is also how heartbreak works. Like you keep going despite knowing that there is a risk that it may not go exactly in the direction you have imagined, but you, you keep at it anyway. And there's something about the persistence, the fortitude and the commitment to projects that may, may break some eggs and that may leave us feeling um, somewhat disturbed or unsettled uh, or dysregulated, um, but may produce other kinds of experiences. Um, and I saw this image and felt it instantly grabbed me. Uh, so I was very delighted that we were able to get the artist's permission to use it. How can your book help therapists and clinicians work through their own trauma in new and different ways? Um, I have some um, reservations about whether it could help somebody do it themselves. Like that, Certainly, as I said earlier, the book is not a self-help book, nor, nor is it a manualized treatment. Um, certainly, this is not a book to read to learn how to do psychoanalysis in general or the kind of psychoanalysis that interests me or that I practice. Um, but what I do hope that the book can do is um, inspire some analysts um, to think a little bit less what I call traumatophobically, less anxiously about trauma and more traumatophilically, and to permit themselves to risk experiences at the limits of what they feel they can bear. Um, that obviously is not a clinical technique and it's not something to implement. Certainly I am not advocating and I should be very, very clear about this, that, that therapists or analysts try to traumatize their patients uh, or that they disrespect their patients' boundaries. By no means do, am I trying to say that. That would be a misunderstanding and frankly, a misuse of what I'm trying to say. But I, I am talking about kind of like taking the risk of inching closer to the limit of what, what we feel we can sit with uh, and what we feel our patients can sit with. And through a careful negotiation uh, of what is um, what may or not be helpful with a patient uh, that happens not in language and not in dialogic exchange, but through the analyst's kind of like knowledge and experience to, to, to risk being kind of like keeping our patient's feet to the fire. There's a passage I'd be curious to ask you about, which is on pages 36 and 37. 
you write the following. We are still at an impasse as to how to understand them otherwise. It is that lacuna that makes politically vexed desires vulnerable to the perennial why that we cannot stop asking of them. My project looks for another entry point into these debates, one that neither denies the historical and structural circumstances that condition such desires, nor surrenders perverse sexual appetites to the cold shower of ethics or good politics. Suffering is often experienced alongside pleasure, not only because the material sexual body can become a lightning rod for psychic pain, but also because the transgressive blend of flesh and intersubjective engagements can render the pain-pleasure matrix a portal for experience. Again, I'm using the word experience here not in its ordinary meaning, as in having an experience of something. When we take the reins of subjectivity, but as something that we risk when we soften our grasp on those reins to undergo something the, the coordinates and effects of which cannot be secured or anticipated. When we are talking about pleasure and pain, there is no universal. Experience varies widely, and what is aesthetic experience to one person may not be so for others. The ethical is thus not about legislating what is right or wrong, it is about acknowledging that there are no universals. Experience so defined stands to bring us into contact with our raw being. Can you interpret this passage for us? Yeah, this passage comes in a section where I am talking um, very much about um, perversity per our earlier um conversation where I'm talking very much about sexuality and um, talking about different forms of sexual engagement that people have with each other, different kinds of sexual experiences, different kinds of sexual interests, um, including um, sexualities that may look bizarre or may look um, that some people might deem problematic, like, for example, as in kink or BDSM. And there is a tradition in queer theory um, of like speaking about these kinds of desires are as being on a spectrum and as having what um as being on a spectrum of what um gail rubin called benign sexual variation which is basically the idea that there's a variation to sexual desire and how people connect sexually how they want to be having sex uh what turns them on that that should not be judged that's what basically Gail Rubin was trying to do. But what that leaves out and what I'm trying to speak about here um, is that, you know, there's also kind of like a lot of historical forces that condition these kinds of desires, that these are not just random variations. As a psychoanalyst, of course, it would be very hard to sign on to that, but there are meaningful variations. That doesn't mean that they are necessarily pathological variations, but they are meaningful. Um, but things get very complicated when we start thinking, but why does this person want to have sex this way? Why why a foot as opposed to genitals? Why this kind of fantasy as opposed to kind of like a more usual and ordinary kind of fantasy? And part of what I say in this section is, however, however um, liberal you are, however open-minded you are, 
there are sexual moments, there are sexual fantasies that of uh, sexual um, kind of like things that people are interested in sexually that will eventually hit your level of tolerance too. And I say this because part of what I explore in this in this book at the, quite a bit of length um, through the work of Jeremy O'Harris's slave play, but also through some interviews and by speaking about um, a black gay man who died of AIDS uh, in the 80s by the name of Gary Fisher. Um, I'm talking also about race play, uh, which is an extremely controversial BDSM practice uh, where a person... Um, Sort of like where, where you have an interracial encounter between um, in the ones that I speak about in the book are about moments where black partners want to be um, what would conventionally be seen as mistreated, but in BDSM is seen as bottoming uh, by white partners in ways that have to do with race um, and with racial humiliation and racial objection. So. Part of what I'm saying is, look, you may think that you're liberal, but at some point, like, you know, as things escalate, as things becomes more uh, more intent, everybody hits a point when they're like, but why? Why somebody? Why would somebody want that? That's what I mean when I say that that's the perennial why that we get to. And race play, um, which is a, a big a kind of like a big part of the discussion in this book, is, is particularly um, important in these conversations because... Because at the, especially at this particular moment in time, as we are grappling more and more explicitly with white supremacy and there's more conversations about it, it, beca- it begins to seem almost kind of like um, unreasonable that we would that we would even be having conversations about race play like have, haven't isn't that in contrast, some people would say with the progress we're trying to make on the level of racial equality, why would why would we even be would we be entertaining uh, conversations or about people who have fantasies or enact fantasies of these kinds of sexual experiences? Um, it takes us back to what I was saying earlier about perversity, about desires that are in some ways messed up, which again, I use not to call them pathological, but to say that there is something messed up about these kinds of desires. But that doesn't mean that um, that we should shy away from them or that we should now be legislating how people are having sex according to what kind of like like a psychoanalyst uh, or um, kind of like um, or, or any one person thinks. What role does George Bataille play in your book? What does George Bataille contribute to the study of trauma? What perspectives does he offer in your study? Can you comment on his influence upon you? Uh, Georges Bataille uh, is a very interesting and I think underutilized philosopher. Um, um, in um, d- Definitely in psychoanalysis, he's not used very much. Um, and he was himself very influenced by the writings of the Marquis de Sade. Um, and he talks less about trauma um, than about experiences with a certain kind of intensity um, that he is interested not just in pursuing, but he is advocating for their pursuit um, because he believes that there is a certain kind of experience, um, which he calls inner experience that can 
can be arrived at if we throw ourselves into these kinds of moments. Um, in, in the book, I talk about these kinds of experiences quite quite a bit, um, bringing him in conversation with Michel Foucault, who also wrote about experiences of this kind. Um, the, the two have some differences, but for the purposes of our discussion, kind of like there's a lot of similarities. Um, and um, Bataille is very interested in kind of like the um, in moving beyond um, beyond recognition or understanding each other as a way of connecting or, or building bonds and is more interested in where eroticism and death begin to overlap. And by death, he's not only in his novels, he's writing not just about physical death, but he's also speaking about kind of like the death of the ego, a certain kind of a coming undone. And he thinks that sexuality is especially privileged in being able to uh, create or approximate these kinds of experiences. Um, so his, his role in my book is to offer frameworks for thinking about these kinds of experiences that are moving us away from the more familiar um, interest in um, the privileging of relationships where one person tries to understand each other and are more about what happens in the encounter between the two opacities uh, between people, um, what happens when we kind of like throw ourselves into experience and risk and risk ourselves in doing so. How do Sigmund Freud and Jean Laplanche think about trauma? What are the similarities and differences between their approaches? Can you compare and contrast the two? Mm, what, a, what a terrific question uh, and, a, and a very happily nerdy question for me. Uh, so I'll try to speak as kind of like simply as possible also for listeners who may not be steeped in psychoanalysis, who I want to be sure can follow what we're talking about. Um, so uh, Sigmund Freud um, is... Um, he was not a consistent thinker. He had many, he worked, you know, he was developing a whole system of thought in kind of like basically birthing psychoanalysis. So he um, shifted his mind and his um, clarifications of his theory many times. But the, the major thrust of his thinking about trauma had to do with the notion of um, a self, kind of like the ego, basically, protecting itself from energies that have come from the outside, stimulation um, over um, kind of like uh, something that is too much that comes from the outside, um, a, a person who is intrusive. Um, um, you can think of it as an organism, like an organism that has to protect itself from the cold, the heat, uh, the temperature, the sound, the kind of like the intensity of um, of light and so on and so forth. And that has to build kind of like a, a, a structure to be able to manage these kinds of stimulations. And for Freud, trauma happened when what was coming in from the outside was too much and it, it would break the barrier uh, of this protection. It would break what he called the contact barrier. Um, and that, that's what he understood as trauma, like something coming in that overwhelms the ego. Um, and that overwhelm, he understood as traumatic and uh, destructive. And the work was then to kind of like, um, kind of like re, re 
re- repair the ego's integrity so that the the organism, the psychic organism could protect itself. But, but Jean-Luc starts with a very different kind of notion, which has tremendous implications for the thinking of this book. He, uh, I will spare the listeners the, the, very, the specifics which they can read about in sexuality beyond consent, but the main idea is that trauma is there from the get-go. It's not something that happens to you later in life, but that we actually are, are we come to be, because of trauma, that we become human through the experience of having been traumatized from the get-go. And you see, these are two very different models in some sense, even though um, there are, these are very different models in the sense that the one starts with a sense of like an initial integrity uh, to the the ego, to the self. And Laplanche's model starts with a notion of there, there is no integrity. There's always what... What the psyche always tries to do, what we always try to do as human is, is negotiate the aftermath of the trauma, negotiate what happens after we have been traumatized, because there is no non-traumatic possibility. And that that really sets the two of them, uh, even though there's a lot of affinity between the two, it also sets them apart um, in ways that are quite substantial. Um, there are elements of Freud that kind of like are more proximal to Laplanche, because as I said, Freud was of many minds uh, when it comes to his theory and to trauma in particular. But in, in a very general way, I would say that this is the major difference. There's a passage I'd be curious to ask you about, which is on page 150. You write as follows. What I do know is that in its aftermath, I was singularly changed. I came to this country as an immigrant from two home countries in my 20s, one with virtually no racial diversity or conversations about race, Greece, and the other, Cyprus, released in the mid-20th century from the tight grips of British rule with virtually no appreciation of its post-coloniality. Upon coming to the States, I worked hard to develop an understanding of my racialization and appreciate the workings of racial dynamics in the United States. So nuanced thinking about race was not new to me when I came to slave play. I had done serious and dedicated intellectual work, and my social and personal life had been far from monochromatic. Slave play gave me an experience of overwhelm that tore up my ego, and that, and in that opening, I was able to forge something new. No matter how much time I had previously spent thinking about race, the experience of slave play did something that could not have happened otherwise. But for the purposes of this book, how the play acted on me is less important than what it did. Though again, it is impossible to talk about the latter without mentioning the former. What matters, in other words, is not my personal transformation per se. The fact that this transformation happened speaks to how some theater and performance exercise a force on us that can shatter and transform us. Can you explain what you're saying in this passage? Can you comment on the importance of slave play, which which came up earlier? Mm-hmm. How did Greece and Cyprus as contexts and backgrounds educate your thinking? That's such a such a rich question. Um and there's there's a lot of context that is needed to explain this in in outside 
kind of like the chapter in which it appears. So I'll, I'll try to do my best. Um, so um, in in the chapter from which this quote um, is sourced, um, I, I talk about, I try to talk about performance in general and how transformational its effects on us can be. And this is this is a point that has been made in a lot of um, uh, in performance studies for many many years. It's certainly not a new idea. Um, but what I try to do as a psychoanalyst is also flesh out the specific mechanisms by which these transformations can happen. And to to say this briefly, and this connects to our earlier conversation. Um, what I what I argue is that some performance can be so intense. Um, and when we give ourselves over to it, can act on us in such ways that it, it can rapture our ego. It can overwhelm us in ways that can be can prove transformational for us as human beings. Um, but here's here's the complicated part: the the experience of it is something that is extremely personal and very hard to describe in words. So in the book, what I try to do is to describe it as much as I can is I talk about how obsessed I became with the play, how many times I went to watch it, how I started teaching about it and writing about it, how I incorporated it in my syllabi and thinking about psychosexuality with psychoanalytic trainees, such that for, for a couple of years, it was in my everyday. Um, and th that has kind of like what I tried to do in describing that is to show how um, preoccupied, fixated, obsessed I became with it. Um, this is one way in which I kind of like try to, to show something that is very hard to show in words and demonstrate for another person because these experiences are so kind of like they're, they're not just personal, they're also in a very solitary part of ourselves, in a very private part of ourselves. Um, but, but I relate that, try to capture some of that. And what I also say is that in the aftermath of an experience of overwhelm with something in yourself gets shattered, the, the ego will very quickly kind of like scurry to kind of like reorganize you. This is how the ego works. Just like when we have a cut in the body, in the body, the, 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 um, the blood cells will... Uh, the white blood cells or the red blood cells, I'm not sure, will rush to that site and try to like quickly close up and coagulate the blood so that you don't bleed out. Right? This is how the ego works too. When it gets ruptured, it will quickly suture itself back together. And what can prove transformational is in, in that suturing, like when you come undone and then get redone, you can be redone in a way that was different than before. So part of what I'm saying in this section is I'm trying to speak a little bit to what I think changed in me through the play. But what I also emphasize is that the question of, you know, at the end of the day, whether Seketopoglu went and watched the play and was transformed by it and what she came to understand about herself or her um, background in terms of like, her experiences in Greece and Cyprus, at the end of the day, that's of very little interest to the reader, or, or, or at least it should be of very little interest to the reader. I, I only offer it as a way of gesturing towards the fact that something did happen. It's not what happened, but that something did happen around it that I'm trying to speak to. Because that's how um, kind of oftentimes we can get very... Um, 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 engrossed and uh, uh, focused on, okay, but what did you get out of it? 
What changed because of it? And I think that that's the low-hanging fruit. I think that that's not the most important question. That something changed is a mark that something happened and that something happened is much more important in some ways than what changed. So yes, of course, like my engagement with slave play changed some things in my understanding of myself and my understanding of my racialization. But what's more important is these two years where I had this experience of feeling intensely preoccupied with it and of being intensely, um, um, kind of like I felt intensely alive in ways that I describe in the book that can feel at times, kind of like when you read it, some people who have read it have said that it can feel like really startling to hear me discuss that uh, in terms of my experiences. And that's what I'm trying to talk about, about how intense some of these experiences can get through art, certainly through sex, um, that's not a surprise, um, through an encounter with another person, even in an encounter with an analyst, um, which is something that I say in my work quite regularly, and which is kind of like, kind of like it's, it really fills me with awe. In what ways does your book challenge and protest against attachment theory? Um, well, in, in some ways, I would say that's very well put that it challenges and actually it's it's very much a protest. Uh, if not, I would say a tantrum against attachment theory. Um, and I say this playfully because part of what I want to convey is that there is um, at, at this particular moment in time, attachment theory has captured both psychoanalytic thinking very powerfully and also wider cultural conversations about how relationships happen. And what I find, and there's many things that I find problematic about uh, that framework, which I cannot get into in great detail at the moment, but one of the major um, um, issues that it raises uh, and which is very much in the book is that attachment theory is very interested in emotional regulation. It's very interested in things not getting too much, not becoming too overwhelming, uh, not um, becoming too distressing. And when my book is very much about what happens in experiences when one allows themselves to go to places where they can feel undone. Um, so in many ways, we could say that attachment theory is much more oriented towards safety and protecting the self and the ego, whereas my work is much more um, excited about directions that um, can open up to something new and surprising and unexpected that that we signed up for but didn't know we had bargained for. Thank you. What is what is excitability? Can you explain this concept? How does your study interpret and reinterpret it? Excitability is it's a very technical term uh, that starts with Freud, who says something very interesting in um, in uh, kind of like a, a set of readings that he calls the three essays on the theory of sexuality. Um, it's a, it's a very influential text in psychoanalysis. Uh, and this is where he's trying to figure out his theory of sexuality. Where, and he says there the following. Um, he's trying to figure out what are the sexual domains of the body. So there is for sure genitals. There is, he will later say, the erogenous zones. But he also says something else which is remarkable and becomes incredibly influential certainly in the book, but also in other theories. He says that the entire skin surface is can become erotogenic, can become erotic 
because the body is excitable. This is not a quote and I'm summarizing, but basically the idea is that whether something is excitable doesn't have to do with whether it is a genital. Like you could say, well, it is normal to feel excited in the genitals, but why would you feel excited, say, in a thumb? Um, but, but what Freud would say, and the idea that I'm working with in this book, is that the entire body is excitable and that this is how the body works as opposed to a problem that we have to account for or um, the indication that some trauma has happened and now we have to like fix that. Um, and this notion of excitability does quite a bit in this book because I start talking not just about the excitable body, but also other kinds of excitable surfaces, so to speak, that have to do with art, that have to do in the contact with the analyst, um, kind of like where things can get quite intense and heated, both sexually and otherwise in the consulting room. What what I what I mean by heated sexually, I don't mean about I'm not talking obviously about kind of like sexual relations, which uh, should not happen. I'm talking about how. Um, the relationship between the analyst and the patient can develop erotic elements that that can feel very um, disturbing, but which also be can become extremely critical to the work. So we begin to see that there is ex excitabilities in various different domains where they should ostensibly not be found, right? Like you would think you go to an analyst to talk about your problems, not what would excitement have to do with that? And if excitement comes up, that would be an issue. But that's not at all how, um, how definitely how psychoanalysis works. And it's also not how human life works. Um, it's possible to go and see um, kind of like an art performance or to, to find yourself excited. And I don't just mean sexually excited before a painting uh, or to feel extremely aroused which is not the same thing as aroused um, by a poem. Not that there's anything wrong with being aroused by a poem, but what I'm trying to speak to is a more general state of excitability. What is abjection? Can you explain this term? How does your book depict it? Can you explain it to our listeners? Um, abjection, I'm trying to think about how to be concise, Ari. Um, abjection has to do with... Um, psychic states, but also bodily states that are proximal to experiences like disgust, humiliation, um, and shame that have been of interest to psychoanalysts and not only, and also to philosophers uh, for a very long time. Um, and most frequently, these are states that are seen as states that need to be um, that somebody needs to be salvaged from, that they are um, symptoms of um, trauma or symptoms of kind of like interpersonal relationships that are going uh, awry. Um, um, but in sexuality beyond consent, I take the states as um, some others have also done. Um, I take these states and try to mine them for to ask different sorts of questions of them. Um, why would somebody court a state of objection? Why would somebody want to find themselves in a state of objection? What happens in interpersonal moments where objection comes up? These moments 
are not, the book argues, necessarily moments that are destructive. Um, and um, the play that I work with, um, the slave play, but also the film that I work with, um, which is The Night Porter, have many instances where moments of objection come up between people um, and which have been very difficult for audiences to see. Um, very difficult, causing a lot of resistance, a lot of upheaval, a lot of protest. Um, both Slave Play and The Night Porter have been works of art that have been very heavily protested and even censored. Um, certainly, The Night Porter was very much censored. Um, um, I, I don't think that Slave Play has been censored, even though there have been efforts to shut it down. Um, and, and what I'm trying to say in bringing up these examples is that these states of objection are, are very hard to sit with or watch without feeling that one is complicit in something, without doing something about it, um, protesting it or turning off the, the camera or walking out of the theater. But the book argues for the, the transformational possibilities um, that can come with experiences of this sort for some people in these cases in some cases. What are your book's insights regarding time and temporality? Um, I don't know that it's so much insights as it is a foregrounding of a particular way of thinking about trauma and time. Um, and this is, um, this is very much in Freud's thinking about trauma and Laplace's thinking about trauma. Um, and it's the place where the two of them converge, which is that we usually understand trauma as something that happened to us in a particular moment in time that then affects us now, that continues to, to kind of like radiate out its, its pain to today. You may know it, you may not know it, you may know that the fact that your relationships are suffering is because of trauma, or you may not realize it and realize it in the course of a treatment or in the course of a, a relationship. But the idea is that trauma happens in a particular moment and then it affects you going forward. But, but there is a model of trauma that we're not as familiar with and which we don't write or talk very much about, but which is very important to psychoanalysis and which when we work with patients, we think about very much, which is that some experiences are not traumatic when, it when they happen in real time, but they can become traumatic after the fact, uh -huh. which is a very odd way of thinking about time. It's a, it's a very non-linear, scrambled version of time because you would think, well, if something problematic happened now, uh, it either happened or it didn't happen. If it didn't happen, if it happened, then if you're traumatized, you're traumatized. And if you're not traumatized, you're not traumatized. But this is not how psychic life works. Um, and I, I don't talk in great detail in the book about this model of trauma, um, but I've written about it elsewhere in relation to Me Too and uh, Me Too memories, recovered memories. Um, what are some topics for f further future research that you would like graduate students, professors, specialists, or newcomers in psychoanalysis to examine mm -hmm. as extensions to your book in light of your book's insights. 
Can you suggest some ideas for papers, books, articles, or even dissertations that you'd encourage readers to pursue in light of the perspectives and insights available in, in your book? I, I love the generosity of that question that imagines in a way that really pleases me that there's going to be that level of engagement with my book. I hope which would so. be Thank you. That would be really terrific. But, you know, like the first thing that comes to mind is what I would like to do and what I'm really curious about, actually, is what different readers will do with the notion of traumatophilia, uh, which I think is a word that we have not had, but which we have really needed to describe experiences that many of us observe in our in our personal lives, certainly in the clinic and in our social lives. And I'm just curious to see how it will taken up will be taken up and what people will do with it. I think there's a lot of interesting potential with that idea. Um, I'm also I'm also um, cautiously optimistic about where we might go with the idea of an ethical kind of sadism and thinking of a sadism as as an unusual form of care, um, which I know that the I know that the concept has a lot of things to fight back because sadism has kind of like it's so immediately recognizable as something destructive and problematic. So I think it will take some effort to kind of like rest it out of that framework and think about it differently. But I do think that there's a lot of possibility in taking seriously the challenge of thinking about care, not only as something, self-care and also care of the other, not only as something that is about reassuring or feeling safe, but also of like pushing each other to go further, pushing each other um, to to try more and to try harder, um, which is always a risky endeavor. Like you push too hard, you can hurt somebody, and that's that's definitely not the point. But you don't push at all, and very little can happen sometimes. Um, that's certainly for those of us who are clinicians, that's always something that we grapple with in the clinic. Uh, even though I should say, I feel like I need to offer kind of like a very explicit qualifier, which is that sadism is not a word that is used in psychoanalysis this way, nor am I sure that my colleagues would necessarily agree with me on this. As we bring our dialogue to a close, what are you working on next as a subsequent project? Can you share with us where your attention has been going now that this book is behind you? Mm. Well, I'm not sure that it's behind me, but it is certainly done. And that has been um, kind of like a, a great pleasure um, to work on it. Um, actually, I am in the midst of finishing another manuscript. Um, it, it's a co-written book um, that I'm working on with um with my co-author, Anne Pellegrini. Um, and the book is on gender, uh, which is another domain that has that I've been working on for some time and on um, providing wider and more complex frameworks to think about uh, transness, non-binary gender, and other genders that are non-normative um, without like trying to move away from born this way arguments and thinking about um, um, atypical genders as just something that is, but as something that is constituted very much like normative gender is something that is constituted. So the book goes in that direction. Thank you. Good luck with your upcoming research. Thank you. Thank you for your eloquent and erudite 
responses in our conversation today, most of all. Thank you, Ari, for like the really deep attention, very careful attention that you've given to my book. I'm really quite delighted with some of the passages you've fished out of my text and the way that you've handled our question, the questions that you've asked me and uh, the follow-up. So I really appreciate the opportunity to have talked about my book with you. Thank you. I'm sincerely humbled. Thank you. To our listeners, I am your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Avri Sakutopolo. We have been discussing her new book, Sexuality Beyond Consent, Risk Race Traumatophilia, published in New York by New York University Press 2023. Thank you. Thank you so much.